Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Why is light so far? Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, growing medicine with yeast. And the mystery mechanism of general anaesthetics. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. First up, reporter Adam Levy is here to tell us about the use of baker's yeast to make an important class of medicines. You may never have heard of tropane alkaloids, but they are classed as essential medicines by the World Health Organization. For good reason, since they're used in the treatment of a wide range of conditions, as synthetic biologist Christina Smolke explains. Currently, there's a number of tropane alkaloids that are used to treat neuromuscular disorders. So these are things when you have uh, muscle spasms, so they're used to treat vomiting and nausea. They're also used to treat Parkinson's disease and the symptoms associated with that. So really a wide range of of different types of uh, medicines uh, are derived from these compounds. Christina is interested in new ways of creating old compounds. She previously found methods to produce another category of essential drugs, opioids, using yeast. And this week in Nature, she's shown a similar technique for these tropane alkaloids. I called her up and started by asking her how these compounds are produced today. So because these were uh, discovered in plants and they are, uh, you know, of a type of compound where their structure is sufficiently complex that we cannot efficiently make them uh, with synthetic chemistry, what we do in, in this case is that we continue to rely on the plant to make these compounds. And so what that means in this case is that uh, we make these compounds by farming. Now, using farming as the approach to get hold of these drugs can be a fragile process at the best of times, but that's really been highlighted in 2020, right? 
That's right. One set of categories is um, environmental events, right? So in over the past year or two, we've seen wildfires devastate uh, entire regions um, that can wipe out, you know, entire crops. And so change the yield and the quality that we're, we're able to get from those crops. The second category, then, of course, is what we're seeing with COVID, um, and these types of global crises. Um, and when you have these, you know, relatively sudden and large spikes in demand, again, a uh, agricultural based supply chain, it's, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to be able to respond to those, because essentially, you would have to basically plant more of the crop. And so it's, it's really a, a supply chain that doesn't have uh, the ability to rapidly respond. Now, given that we can't synthesize molecules like this in the lab yet, what did you set out to do differently to growing them in a field? What we've been interested in doing is basically developing different ways of being able to synthesize them in the lab, but ones that aren't founded in chemistry, but are founded in biology. And so the idea here, though, is to uh, shift from utilizing plants to platform organisms. And so for us, that platform organism is brewer's yeast. So brewer's yeast is an organism that we as humans uh, have, you know, centuries working with, basically, and utilizing for our purposes. And so the idea then is that what we want to be able to do is basically change that yeast so that Instead of making uh, the typical products of fermentation that we like to use, which are uh, ethanol and carbon dioxide, that we're instead changing it. So the products are these high value uh, active ingredients that, you know, typically would only be made in plants. You've carried out a similar process with opioids, producing uh, certain opioid compounds with yeast. How different is the approach that you're employing here? Certainly this work here leverages uh, many of the approaches and techniques that we've been developing in my laboratory over the past decade, but it takes it a step further. So, you know, plants are nature's best chemist, basically, and the types of molecules they make are incredibly interesting and also incredibly valuable. It will specialize cells and tissues for certain chemistries and biosyntheses to occur. And so in this paper, what we did was we actually wound up utilizing all the organelles in the cell, uh, where we're distributing basically different chemistries uh, across uh, the cell. You know, we sort of draw an analogy to a factory, right, um, where you have, you know, different processes taking place across a factory floor. That's how we're beginning to re-envision the yeast cell. What stage are you currently at? I mean, presumably, we're not going to be able to, to buy tropane alkaloid-based drugs which are produced by yeast in the shops anytime soon? Not immediately, right? But as the first sort of proof of concept demonstration, you know, what the challenge is, is that ultimately how much of these molecules the yeast are making are low. But what we've seen is that, so while it's not ready immediately, right, to be making drugs at scale, with a, with a dedicated team and with the right investment, it can be ready to scale within one to two years. Just how big an advantage would being able to do this in yeast commercially be providing compared to the conventional way of extracting from plants? My own belief is that it's a huge advantage. This type of approach really gives us a way to make these compounds on demand when and where needed. There's huge implications there. But the other side of this, beyond just supply chain and manufacturing, is, is drug discovery, right? Which is to say that once you have these pathways reconstructed in yeast, we can begin to manipulate the pathways, right? And, and begin to make changes and modifications. 
And that's really, I think, will have huge impacts for drug discovery. That was Christina Smolke. For more on those microbial factories, then make sure you check out her paper. We'll put a link in the show notes. Next up, it's time for a weekly update on coronavirus with Coronapod. Hello, yes. Um, welcome to the Coronapod section of the show. A few things to say before we get going. Firstly, Ben and Amy are not here this week, so it's just me, Noah Baker. I will try to do all I can. In other news... You might hear a slight difference this week in the recording. The reason is that I'm no longer in my sort of home-built duvet fort comforter studio. I'm actually on my narrowboat in London, and I'm moored next to a skate park. So I'm really sorry if there's horrible noises. There's not much I can do about it at this moment in time. And there's a new voice, and that's Heidi Ledford. Um, Heidi, who are you? Let people know, you know, what it is that you do in nature. I think the first thing to know is that I am nowhere near as glamorous as Noah living on a boat in the canals in London. I am a a reporter for Nature in London. Once upon a time, I used to cover things like cancer biology and drug development and sort of biomedical topics. But for the past few months, it has been mostly coronavirus and COVID. This week, we're going to talk about immunity. So this is a really big topic and it's a really central topic to the pandemic in general and it sounds like it might be a simple thing to talk about but it's actually not simple at all. I thought maybe the first thing to ask you to do Heidi is to give us a bit of an overview so immunity isn't one thing. What do we mean when we say immunity? Yeah it's true we can mean a lot of different things so the immune system is very complex and there was a time when I would have said it's beautiful I love how beautifully complex it is and it's amazing and versatile and can respond to so many different challenges nowadays when we want really simple answers (laughs) to important (laughs) questions. And we're kind of all counting on our immune system to get us out of this pandemic, right? So now it's sort of miserably complex. And it's hard for us to really get a clear read on on, um, how things are going to shake out long term. But yes, so the immune system has a number of different ways of responding to viruses. And we've got an amazing amount of data already, particularly about antibodies, which are both relatively easy to study, but also very important in immune responses. But then you also have specialized cells like T cells that are able to, in some cases, recognize the cells in your body that are infected by a virus and then destroy those cells, thereby you know, interrupting the viral replication process. And we also have memory B cells, which are, they, they kind of linger around. They're a bit sleepy, you know, they wait until you're infected by a virus that you've seen before, and they jump into action and kick off the process that starts producing antibodies against that virus again, so that you can respond to that virus more rapidly than you did, you know, the first time around that you encountered it. So there are lots of different levels to the immune system. The key problem I think that we're facing right now, when all of us really want clear answers, is that we don't have a good marker or even a set of markers that we can look at and say, oh, okay, antibodies are doing this, T cells are doing that. Therefore, our long-term immunity to this virus is going to look like this. You know, we don't really have a way of doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess these are all really fundamental questions to other things that we've talked a lot about on Coronapods. So if you think about a vaccine and you have something that might give you some kind of protection, if you don't really have a sense of what protection looks like or how to measure it yet, it throws the whole sort of concept of a vaccine up in the air. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of worries about you know, how effective is a vaccine going to be? I mean, we're all sort of hitching our hopes to the vaccine, right? And when vaccines come out and then, you know, we can all reemerge from our houses and protect our loved ones and so on. 
but we don't know yet how effective that vaccine is going to be. Will one shot work at all? Will we need booster shots, which is not the end of the world, right? We have booster shots for lots of our vaccines. But, you mm-hmm. know, when you're thinking about vaccinating a, a globe full of 7 billion people, and then now you've got to, to add in a booster shot or two or three or whatever, then that does complicate things. We also, we don't know, will a vaccine be able to make us completely immune so that the virus won't even be able to replicate in our bodies anymore, right? That we won't be infected at all. And that's something called sterilizing immunity. Or maybe the best we can hope for is some situation where we would still get infected a second time, perhaps, but maybe our symptoms won't be as severe or even show up at all. Yeah, I think when a lot of people hear immunity, what they'll imagine is that sterilizing immunity, that first thing that you talked about, the kind of barrier that says you cannot get this disease, you cannot be infected anymore. But actually, in reality, often what people are talking about when they say immunity is just your immune system is strengthened enough that you can cope with that infection in a way that is not going to be too damaging to your health. And then, you know, the situation we're in now, I mean, better that than nothing, right? (laughs) In a way. But it is true that long term, that could still pose a problem, particularly for the elderly and for for the vulnerable populations. If, If we are walking around not realizing that we're infected and not with that presence of mind, maybe still to wear a mask and have the hand sanitizer and so on and so forth, and that could still pose a risk for those populations. So if scientists want to find out more about immunity to COVID, what's in the toolbox of a researcher to better understand immunity? How do you study this? Yeah, they've done a lot of really good work and amazingly fast work so far, you know, looking at things like antibodies and T cells and B cells. A lot of what we really need, I guess, is just data from what happens in the real world, right? I mean, we will get some really good data potentially from vaccines and vaccine trials because they'll be looking at, you know, whether or not these vaccines can stimulate an immune response. And they may also give us some idea, you know, if a vaccine doesn't perform particularly well, for example, we may be able to use that data to figure out, okay, why did some patients do well with this vaccine, and but it didn't work for other participants in the study, right? You know, so, so that can give us some good clues going forward. The other thing, which is, has not been great news, I guess, over the past week or so, is that we've had several pretty well-documented cases now of reinfection. I mean, we've had anecdotes all along, but now we're getting some cases where people have actually looked and been able to sequence the virus both during the initial infection and during the second infection to show that there are distinct variants and distinct viruses and you actually had two infection events. And, you know, people do think that we're going to see more of those cases in the future. As we see more of those cases, we may begin to learn a bit more about, you know, why some people are becoming reinfected, you know, are they showing symptoms that are more severe, less severe um, than they did the first time around? Some of the some of the key questions that we want to have answered may actually kind of come from this, what we would consider to be bad news, I guess, from these stories of reinfection. Right. And I guess these reinfection stories, you know, you can sort of spin them in different ways, depending on what you want to know. You know, it's information that's helpful for the future, but also it's maybe worrying that people don't have long term immunity after being infected. But there's also even more things that confuse it, right? So if someone had, you know, maybe a mild infection, they might not have had as large an immune response. And so they may be less likely to develop a longer term immunity. You know, that's the same reason that people argue that people don't really become immune to colds because they don't trigger a big enough infection. Should we be worried at this point? You know, in your judgment, you know, is there enough positive evidence that things are going to be all right? 
Oh, you know, I think, well, I think we're in the middle of a really terrible situation. So I think, you know, we can't help but be worried. And I think, you know, sometimes some of the bad news carries a lot of weight maybe in our minds because it, it you know, it, it feels apocryphal sometimes, you know. But I think the main thing to keep in mind is that all of this data is preliminary, right? I mean, these reinfection cases, you know, there were reports of maybe four last week, two of them I've seen preprints for. You know, in one of those cases, um, the person on second infection had fewer symptoms. And then in the other case, the person had more severe symptoms. And we're just, you know, what can you what can you do with that information? Because it's N equals one in each category. I mean, you just don't know. There's so many things that could be confounding that. I think we may also have lost sight of some of the good news that came out early on, you know, and we've just kind of gotten used to it. Like the fact that we can mount what look to be effective antibody responses against SARS-CoV-2 at all is great news you know, because not we can't do that against every virus, right? HIV, we don't do a good job with that. I think if anything, well, there are many lessons we should have learned from the pandemic, but I think one of them really has to be that we have to be careful about reading too much into anecdotes, right? Like if, if anecdotes were the gospel truth, then hydroxychloroquine would have saved us all months ago. <laughs> and um, so <laughs> we just, we have to, sometimes we do just have to sit and wait but I can say, like on a personal level, my daughter was quite sick uh, back in April with something that seemed like COVID. And um, you couldn't get tested back then, right? It was very difficult to get tested in London at the time. So we don't know for sure. But I catch myself now on those beautiful occasions when we leave the house, when I think, eh, she's fine. She's had it already, you know? And then I have to honestly, you know, take that thought and step back and think, no, 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 wait. I mean, A, we don't know for certain that she had it, but B, we don't know for certain that she would be immune, even if she did. And then C, even if she seemed to be immune, you know, maybe she would still become mildly infected and shed it and, and carry the virus around to other members of the community. So I, I do, I have this conversation with myself, like constantly. And, you know, she wears the mask and she puts on the hand sanitizer and does everything just like we all do, because we don't know. Okay, well, it seems like there's going to be an awful lot to keep an eye on. Heidi, thank you so much for, for joining us and telling us all there is to know about immunity. I have to laugh at the idea of telling you all there is to know about immunity because it is so complicated. Thank you so much for having me. It's always, it's always good fun. Noah and Heidi there. And we'll have more on the ongoing pandemic next week. Coming up, we'll be learning about research uncovering how anaesthetics work. Before that, though, Dan Fox is here with this week's research highlights. If you're anything like me, then there have been times when a plan to have a small scoop of ice cream for dessert has ended with you clearing out a whole tub. Now, scientists have found the circuit in the brain that could explain why it's so easy to overindulge, even after a hearty meal. Working in mice, the researchers identified a region of the brainstem that is home to a set of neurons whose activity is influenced by food and water intake. They found that activating these neurons inhibited eating, but blocking them caused the mice to eat or drink more and for longer, even when the animals were well-fed and hydrated. The team served the mice a variety of liquids while monitoring the neurons' activity and found that the activity was reduced when the mice drank water or bitter-tasting compounds. However, this reduction in neuronal activity was even more noticeable when the mice consumed tasty drinks like a vanilla-flavoured beverage. This suggests a feedback loop that allows consumption of tasty food and drink to trick the brain into wanting more. Indulge in the full buffet of that research over at Cell. <laughs> 
certain bacteria have been found to have a special skill, a hidden talent for electrical wiring. A team of researchers investigating the electrically conductive bacteria Geobacter sulfuroducens found that the microbes flourished when grown on a copper electrode, forming tough layers known as biofilms. What's more, these biofilms produced double the electrical current of those grown on a graphite electrode. Chemical analysis revealed copper sulfide solids deposited throughout the films. The team concluded that the bacteria promote chemical reactions between the copper electrode and sulfate ions in their food source to form sulfide wires, which enhance the flow of electricity within the biofilm. The researchers hope that their finding can help to improve the design of fuel cells that could take advantage of such electrically conductive bacteria. Plug into that research at Energy and Environmental Science. Next up on the show, I've been looking into general anaesthetics. Now, if you're about to go into surgery or something, you might want to skip this section, because it might not comfort you to know that despite being used for over a hundred years, there's a lot we don't know about anaesthetics. I think it's fair to say we do not have a rock-solid understanding of how general anaesthetics work. This is Ryan Hibbs, a biophysicist who's interested in neurological questions, like that of how anaesthetics do indeed function. This week in Nature, he's published a paper looking at the detailed mechanisms of how anaesthetics bind to a certain receptor in the brain. I called him up to find out more, and asked, what do we know about how anaesthetics work? It helps to step back just a little bit to understand that the central nervous system, let's focus on the brain in particular, works as a balance of excitatory and inhibitory or positive and negative signaling. If you have too much positive signaling, too much excitation, you get convulsant disorders like epilepsy. If you have too much inhibitory signaling, too much inhibition, too much negative signaling, then you go to sleep, eventually you stop breathing, you go into a coma and you die. So much like when you're running the water for a bath, you need this balance of hot and cold signaling, excitation and inhibition for things to work well. So general anesthetics calm down signaling in the brain. They dampen signaling in the brain. And they do that by inhibiting the excitation and stimulating the inhibition signaling. So some of the molecular targets for general anesthetics include this receptor, this GABA-A receptor we're working on, Several general anesthetics act through making it easier for that receptor to work. And so what were you trying to understand with this paper? What were your ideas going into it? Other groups over the past several decades have identified specific GABA-A receptors and components of them to be targets for some general anesthetics, many of them. And we wanted to go to the next level of detail and look at exactly how some general anesthetics bind to these GABA-A receptors to visualize exactly where they are nestling into their binding sites in these receptors, hoping that by doing that, we would gain some additional understanding into how they do what they do. And so 
what you did is you looked at this receptor and how general anaesthetics were binding using electron microscopy. But my understanding is, well, you didn't just look at these anaesthetics. You also looked at a few other different compounds and how they were binding to the GABA receptor too. Why were you interested in those ones as well? That's right. So this GABA-A receptor is the target of several different important drug classes, some that are very useful clinically, as well as some abused drugs. And those include benzodiazepines, those include Valium and Xanax. They act through potentiating this GABA-A receptor, similar to what general anesthetics do to it. And we wanted to compare how general anesthetics work on this receptor with benzodiazepine drugs. And so we also obtained structural information for the receptor bound to a classical benzodiazepine, diazepam, and an inhibitor of this benzodiazepine site called flumazenil. So we collected structural information for this receptor with these different drug classes bound to understand what mechanisms they might share and what mechanisms might be distinctive to better understand how they work and how the receptor works. And so you had these different pictures, essentially, of how these different compounds were binding to the receptor. What were the differences? What were the similarities into how these things were binding? So it got quite complicated, more complicated than we expected. So it turns out that the benzodiazepine, diazepam, the one that is extremely popular for anxiety, Valium, binds to four different places on this receptor. One of them is the classical benzodiazepine site, and that site overlaps perfectly with where flumazenil binds. So flumazenil, it's easy to understand how it would directly compete with the interaction of diazepam with the receptor at this one site. That site has been well characterized and is called the benzodiazepine site. We were interested to see that the classical benzodiazepine diazepam also bound in three different locations in another region of the protein, the part of this protein that is buried in the cell membrane. And these are sites that overlap with where general anesthetics bind and, in fact, would compete with some of the general anesthetics we looked at. So it is known that at low concentrations, benzodiazepines like the one we looked at help with anxiety. But at high concentrations or higher concentrations, they can be used to directly induce anesthesia. So it may be through binding to these additional sites in the transmembrane domain of the receptor that diazepam is able to directly induce anesthesia. What might that mean then? What might be the implications of these results if you see how these different things combined? General anesthetics do have side effects, and propofol, while it's extremely popular, for example, cannot be given in cases in elderly patients, especially where uh, cardiovascular issues are a problem. And so there are side effects of these drugs that we don't really understand. And one of the reasons we get these side effects is because general anesthetics like propofol or volatile general anesthetics like isoflurane or sevoflurane that are extremely useful in the clinic, they bind to all different kinds of proteins. If we could make these drugs more selective, then we could target them specifically to have tailored effects in the nervous system and maybe get the desirable components of anesthesia without the undesirable respiratory depression, something like that. And so our hope is that by understanding in this exquisite level of detail how these drugs interact with their receptor targets, 
we can add a methyl group here or put an oxygen there or a nitrogen there and tailor them to bind to these receptors more specifically and have fewer off-target effects. That's the dream. So now if I was to ask you after this research, how do general anesthetics work? Do you think you would have like an answer for me now? (laughs) (laughs) I'd say we know how some of them work through this receptor at a very fine level of detail with a lot of confidence. But there are definitely more mysteries to resolve related to the mechanisms of general anesthetics. That was Ryan Hibbs from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. For more details about his research, you can find a link to his paper in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's time for the weekly briefing chat. Now, the Nature Briefing is in fact having a brief summer break. But Nick, I know you've been digging around for some fun science stories we can chat about. What have you found? Well, this is a story that I don't think you could have missed if you've been on any sort of science or science adjacent social media. And this is about the company Neuralink has put a chip in a pig's brain. I really have missed this. I mean, I'm familiar with the headline, but I don't know the story at all. What? 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 Robot-controlled pigs? What's happening here? Let's go back a couple of steps. So um, Neuralink is a company that was founded a few years ago by Elon Musk, who you may know as the founder of SpaceX and Tesla. And basically the idea is to make a sort of human-computer interface, so like a chip that can be implanted into your brain, and then it can do all sorts of things, augment you or interface with computers and stuff like that these are the things they're sort of claiming and so there was an update this past week where they rolled out a pig that actually had one of these chips implanted into its brain like a a live pig with a pig computer interface yeah basically it was a little coin shaped object with really thin floppy wires coming out of it that was implanted into the pig's brain And you could see during this live broadcast, you could see basically the neurons firing as the pig snuffled about. The pig was called Gertrude. That's not relevant, but it's just cute. (laughs) But Gertrude wasn't there sort of controlling any computers or having super x-ray vision. No, it wasn't doing anything like that. This is quite an early prototype from what can be gathered about it. And so some neuroscientists have looked into this. There was a white paper that also came out at the same time. And they said that it is really interesting technology. And this is quite interesting and quite impressive as well to see sort of these live broadcasts of different neurons firing as the pig sort of snuffled about. But it's a long way away from what some of the things that the company are claiming that it will be able to do in the future, such as improve people's vision or store memories and, well, interface with computers and things like that. That seems to be a long way off. But the actual chip itself seems to be quite intriguing bit of technology. I guess I can see how a chip in your brain could detect electrical impulses going on in your head. But all all this other stuff about like whether we're sort of controlling computers with our mind or the the computer is somehow augmenting you like that's really far off from just a chip reading electrical signals how how would that even work well it's not outright impossible but it may just be a long way off and they sort of haven't really given a clear timeline on when different things like this are going to be available but the idea is that each of the different little wires will be able to 
interface with neurons and they'll be able to cause neurons to fire to do certain things and they'll also be able to receive impulses from neurons so you can control things with your brain essentially so is those sort of things that the company are claiming that you know one day maybe you'll be able to limit pain or maybe even telepathy but one thing that does seem like it is a possibility is they talked about helping people with spinal injuries and people who have nerve damage and stuff like that. And that is something that may well be possible by stimulating certain parts of the brain using a chip like this. So yes, this isn't just super sci-fi video game, super tech, uh, useful useful medical applications. That's, that's good to know. Yeah, and... One day. One, one day. And the other thing will be that people have to see the sort of the long-term effects on this and how this will work in humans too. There could be, you know, all sorts of things going on with implanting something into someone's brain. But can you implant something into my brain, Sharmini? What is your story this week? That was so bad. <laughs> Nick, that was a terrible segue. So, yeah, I, I'm cheating this week, actually. I haven't gone up and dug out an exciting news story. I'm going to tell you something that I've been working on for video for, for our YouTube channel. It's Maybe it's got to be seen to be believed. I don't know. But let me, let me describe it to you and um, <laughs> see if you believe it, I guess. So here is the image that I need you to get in your head. Right. You have a glass container a little bit taller and wider than your hand, say. It's filled with sort of bluish liquid. But in this container, a layer of this liquid, about an inch deep, is levitating. So it it fills the container to the side. Above it is some air. Below it is some more air. And it seems to be floating of its own accord. That's weird thing number one. Weird thing number two, it's my favourite part, is the tiny, cute plastic boat that the researchers have decided to use to demonstrate this weird phenomenon that they've been working on. And this tiny, cute plastic boat is floating upside down at the bottom of this levitating liquid layer. So the hull of the boat is in the liquid, but the sail is poking down into the air underneath the layer of liquid. So it looks like it's defying gravity and just sailing along, floating there, upside down right okay so there's a boat floating upside down and liquid levitating can you i mean what is going on here it's science funnily enough i love this story because you just look at it and you're like there is no possible sensible explanation for this it's just ridiculous and counterintuitive but i'll start off with the levitating liquid which is not a particularly new discovery so this was known to happen and the way that you do it is with vertical vibrations so basically this glass container that i talked about is placed on a shaker so it's just shaking up and down quite high you know you can hear it buzzing away in the videos just just shake 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 and it's that shaking which stops the liquid from falling there's a particular effect which means that liquid tends to fall in in drips right now the shaking prevents the dripping and if the bottom surface can't form these little drips it can't fall and therefore the whole thing ends up with this weird sort of suspension effect right okay so that's something that we did know that happens i'm still struggling to get my head (laughs) on it but physics says that happens Sure. Where does the boat come in? <laughs> so the boat is, is the sort of new part of the science where these researchers in Paris were looking at this shaking levitation effect and they discovered that if you put not necessarily a boat but any sort of like light plastic object that would usually float, it will also float on the bottom surface of this 
levitating liquid. Uh, this was quite hard for them to set up and, and get it in position. The um, little plastic boats had a tendency to either fall to the to the bottom or like bob up to the top. But if you get it in the kind of right area, it will just float there in a, in a kind of, they, they described it as kind of reverse buoyancy. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what it is. It's still buoyant it's still floating just upside down now is this just my human brain resisting this does this make a lot of sense like mathematically or with the laws of physics like i'm just trying to work out like how it is that the boat is floating there upside down well my human brain looking at it has decided it definitely doesn't make sense but i have strong reassurances from (laughs) world experts that if you go through the maths the energy sort of inputted by this shaking effect changes the forces that are acting on this boat and causes this phenomenon but I would recommend going and yeah checking out this this video which has just come out and there'll be a link in the show notes and seeing for yourself that it it really does work um, and it does if you if you read the paper it does make some kind of sense right well I think I'm gonna have to see that video to quite fully believe this but Thanks for chatting to me, Shamini. And listeners, for more on those stories, then we'll put some links in the show notes. And make sure you check out the Nature Briefing as well, which will resume shortly. We'll put a link to that too. And if the Nature Podcast floats your boat, why not tell us about it? We love hearing your feedback. You can find us on Twitter, we're at Nature Podcast, or drop us an email, we're podcast at nature.com. I'm Shamini Bundell. And I'm Nick Al. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.